Hello, church. My name is Russ Martin, and the district superintendent and our church board have asked me to serve as interim pastor as we seek the Lord's direction in these coming days for the leadership uh, in our church. Uh, I told the, uh, the in-person gathering on Sunday some of my background, so let me just share a little bit of that with you. Um, I've been a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene for 46 years, and then two years ago we retired. Uh, we've been pastoring in Colorado the last decade and uh, returned to San Diego where we had been living. Uh, my wife, Luann, uh, was on staff over at San Diego First Church for 13 years. And then when we got married, uh, we moved to Colorado, pastored there for 10 years, and now uh, back in San Diego. And so the churches I have pastored have mostly been in California, though I took 10 years off in Colorado with a church and uh, 10 years in Hawaii serving a church there. Uh, then the Lord is now using us uh, here in this type of ministry. This is the third time we've been able to serve on the district in an interim uh, role. Both of our lives, as you uh, may have gathered our story, uh, both of our spouses passed away. Dana Walling, when he was 50, uh, Luann's first husband, worked at the college for years. Many of you would know Luann from that context. And then my wife passed away when she was 54, when we were pastoring up in Lancaster in the high desert. And uh, so Colorado was kind of our new start. Luann and I met when we were putting together our reunion for Point Loma and reconnected. And, and so as I told the, uh, the gathering on Sunday, a little bit of my background. Uh, if we're going to be sharing together, you'd probably like to know uh, where I'm coming from. I've been a longtime uh, member of the Church of Nazarene. I'm a fifth-generation Nazarene, actually, and uh, have enjoyed uh, the pastoral ministry. I want to share with you just a few uh, verses before we go into this, uh, this message for today uh, about the, the covenant I have with God. Uh, my covenant with God early on was based on a lot of the scriptures that I read, especially in the book of Philippians. It seems that Paul's covenant there is, I will serve you no matter what happens. And so Paul was in prison, and obviously he was uh, not in the best of circumstances, and yet God continued to use him. But his covenant seemed to be, and what I have adopted, is if I belong to God, and if God is in control of my life, then God will use everything that happens to me for his glory. Indeed, it says in Romans chapter 8, he works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so things happen to us so that things can happen in us. And then things happen in us so that things can happen through us. And so God has used uh, us in this journey with that in mind. And if God is working out his purposes in our church at this point, we seek his best for leadership in the days to come. So be praying for the church board and our district leadership as they seek uh, the right candidates uh, to serve as our pastor. My scriptural road to that covenant covers five verses. And let me just give you those briefly, as I did with the group this last week, so we'll all be up to speed uh, together. Uh, first of all, from Philippians chapter 1, the 21st verse, for me to live is Christ. Paul didn't say for me to live is to learn about Christ or to serve Christ, but to be Christ, to have him abide within us. Paul said, I don't know where I end and he begins. And that's the kind of relationship I want to have uh, with the Lord. And then in John chapter 15 and verse 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say you can do some good things or you can work for me. He says, apart from me, you don't do anything. In fact, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, on Judgment Day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these good things? And they begin to list them off. Didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? He said, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
So what matters is knowing Christ, is being in this relationship with Him. The next verse comes from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. You may have already quoted it to yourself when we think about apart from Christ we can do nothing. For Paul says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. He is my enabler. There's another verse that goes right with that in Paul's writing from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing greatness is from God and not from us. We are never to assume that we are doing something for God. He is working in us and through us. And the final verse comes back to Philippians and right at the start of the first chapter, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So those are kind of my life verses. Uh, I believe that this covenant relationship uh, is based upon the fact that Christ has won the victory on the cross, that Christ lives within me by his spirit, and that I am his disciple. And so as disciples together, I want us to think in these coming days about what it means to serve him as a disciple. So we're going to be in the section of scripture to start with where Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. So you can start reading from chapter 13 of, uh, of John's gospel where we, uh, the group that met with us live on Sunday morning, we looked at the foot washing and Jesus uh, dealing with the disciples in that regard. It is the time when Jesus moves from public ministry into private ministry. That turning point from the end of John chapter 12 into John chapter 13, where we have all these upper room discourses, all of Jesus sharing with the disciples all these last minute details before his cross and to prepare them uh, for his resurrection and his ascension. And so we're going to be looking at those verses. Uh, Before we move into that, I'd like to let you know that on the first Sunday of each month, we'll be sharing uh, in communion together. Those who are here with us on Sunday mornings will partake. We've got the special sanitized uh, communion version where you have your own cup and you peel off the top to find the bread. If you would like to come by the church, those of you who meet at home and online, uh, would you like to come by the church and pick those up? You're welcome to do that. Or if you have a suitable substitute there at home with crackers and juice, you can just plan to partake with us each uh, first Sunday of the month. In fact, uh, next Sunday will be Worldwide Communion Sunday, and we'll be sharing with believers around the world as we share that communion message. Just a few things before we move to today's scripture from what we shared uh, with that crowd last week was that when Jesus met with the disciples in the upper room, there had been squabbling on the way when Jesus had been telling them, the greatest among you is he who serves. And so now he acted that out. They had been arguing over who was the greatest. And so when they came into the house... No one bothered to wash each other's feet. It was probably a rotating responsibility they had among their band of followers. But everybody was so caught up in their own ego that nobody bowed to wash anyone's feet. So Jesus took the garb of his servant and went around and one by one began to wash the disciples' feet. And you'll recall he went to James, he went to John, he went to Andrew and Philip. All the way down he washed Judas' feet. But when he came to Peter, Peter objected. You will never wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash you, you don't have no part in me. And so then Peter relented. In fact, wanted a whole bath. But Jesus said, no, you've had a bath. You just need your feet washed. And so Jesus asked a couple of questions that are pertinent to us as disciples. First of all, in verse 12 of chapter 13, he says, do you understand what I have done for you? After he'd washed their feet. 
it said he was showing them the full extent of his love. This is the foreshadowing of the cross. This is showing the servant attitude that he was giving to us at that point. He says, if I, your Lord, have washed your feet, you should wash each other's feet. And then he says, down in verse 17, now that you know this, you'll be blessed if you do it. Our knowledge should lead to action. And so in these coming days, we're going to be working from the words of Jesus with the understanding that the knowledge we receive from the words of Christ should lead us into action. And there are great messages in this action. We recognize that Jesus has prepared us to be his followers. So you're caught up with what we were looking at uh, last week. And now I want us to, uh, to see uh, a few verses from chapters 13 and 14 where Jesus is dialoguing with the disciples here in the upper room. Just before the COVID crisis started, uh, Luann and I were at a point where we needed to trade in our old car for something a little more reliable. And so when we were going through all the paperwork with that, I pointed out to her something in the contract as we were signing all the various pages where it listed our old car and what it was worth in trade-in, and two words described the car, as is. (laughs) Kind of a polite way of saying damaged goods. Uh, Or if you've ever shopped in one of the outlet malls, uh, I'm particularly fond of the uh, term that they use, slightly irregular. Uh, I I bought a sweater in one of those outlet malls one time. It actually had little stickers on it where the flaws were. Here's a flaw. Here's a flaw. As people, we are indeed, as is, slightly irregular, every one of us. No one is normal. It's a deep theological insight. But Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The New Testament equivalent of that is when Paul says, all have sinned and continually fall short of the glory of God. And then over a few verses, a few chapters in in Romans says, and the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so we recognize as disciples in the foot washing, in his talking about the cross, in his announcement of the upcoming betrayal, uh, that Jesus is sharing his heart with the disciples. This is in preparation for his departure. So he has much to say to you. And yet when John records this, you know, maybe up to 60 years after the cross, John is sharing from the perspective of a member of the church. He has seen the fullness of the Spirit over all of these decades active in the church. The last living disciple who has not died of martyrdom. And so John then records four different questions or interruptions as Jesus is sharing his heart with the disciples. And Jesus masterfully works in this question and answer time with the disciples to share his purpose. Starts out in chapter 13. And Jesus says in verse 31. Now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, then God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And then a key, key verse, and Peter misses this completely. A new commandment I give you, love one another. Love is not just an emotion, it's a commandment from Christ. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So then Peter chimes in 
Lord, where are you going? He was focusing in on Jesus says, I am going away and you can't go there now. And so, have you ever been in a conversation and you're so keyed into what you're going to say next, you don't hear what the person is saying to you? That's where Peter is. He misses the main point that Jesus is trying to make. My command is to love. But he's fixated on this idea that Jesus is going away and he can't follow him. And so he says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replies, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter said, Lord, with a follow-up question, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, in Matthew and Mark's account of this, uh, Peter kind of put down the other disciples when he says, this is, even if all these others fall away, I will not. I will go with you to my death if I need to. And in Luke's version, this wonderful message from Jesus to him. He says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you return, there's this sense that he knows that Paul, Peter will come back after his failure and denial. Let's just contrast for a moment Peter and Judas in this scene here in the upper room. Judas' sin is intentional. Nothing is more deliberate. It's not a spur-of-the-moment thought that I maybe I'll betray the master. He's already made this deal with the Pharisees, the leaders of the synagogue. Judas' sin is completely intentional. Jesus tries to talk him out of it in the upper room. He puts him in this place of honor. He, with deep affection, dips the bread into the cup and hands it to Judas as a symbol of the one who is planning to betray him. Whereas Peter's sin completely catches him by surprise. So I'm California born and raised. In our 10 years in Colorado, I learned the danger of black ice. (laughs) That you can be walking across the parking lot, you can be walking down the sidewalk, and before you know it, not seeing a patch of ice, you can be right down on the ground. In 1 John, the second chapter, John writes, Little children, I write this to you so that you do not sin. And the word there for sin is the habitual pattern of sinfulness. I write this to you so you don't live in that habitual pattern of sinfulness. And then it goes on to say, but if anyone does sin. But that's the word for sin of being caught off guard, like slipping on that ice. You didn't mean to fall down, but you fell. That's the difference between Judah's sin here and Peter's sin. Jesus answered Peter with love. He was assured of Peter's love, even in his bumbling failure. And yet, Judas went out and killed himself. Peter went out and wept deeply, but later was reinstated by Jesus. So chapter 13 ends with this failure of Peter. Now, John didn't have chapter divisions. He goes right then into this statement of trust. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. He's just spoken to Peter about this abject failure. He's going to disown him three times that very night. He says, but trust in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me so you also may be where I am. And then he says once more, you know the place where I am going. So now we come to interruption number two. That interruption comes uh, as we uh, look to Thomas. Thomas always wants tangible proof. (laughs) How can we know the way, he says. 
And Jesus wants to go right back to what he has just said about trust. I am going and I will come again. I'm going to prepare a place. If we think of heaven as relationship with God more than a destination, we could translate this in my father's household, in my father's family are many resting places, many opportunities for refreshment. We will be with him forever. Often we failed and vowed, you know, we're going to not do that again because we're going to try harder. Just like Peter, relying on ourselves instead of relying upon Christ. We need to center in Christ. And so he says, put your trust in me. In one of Henry Nouwen's books, Sabbatical Journey, he speaks of two of his friends, part of the Flying Rondellas, that was a trapeze artist's family. And they told him of their roles as trapeze artists. Trapeze artist. One was the flyer and one was the catcher. And he said, I'm the flyer. I let go and then I have to be completely still in midair and trust and the catcher catches. The flyer must never try to catch the catcher, but trust. And isn't that the way we are with Christ? He promises he will catch us. He will keep us safe in his arms. But we must not grasp for it. We must recognize that he will do it. And so Thomas interrupts and says, how can we know the way? Now this is kind of a a terrible attitude on his part because the assumption is works righteousness. Works righteousness says we can find the way if we only know the destination. Where is it you're going? You know, we'll do all the things we need to do to get there. And Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. It's a marvelous response from Jesus. Only God opens the way to God. When Moses asked at the burning bush, Who shall I say sent me? Tell them, I am. And all through the New Testament, Jesus echoes that in all the I am statements to realize that he is the living God. I am the light. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the Lord of all. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way. And all through the history of God's people, they've been seeking the way. In Psalm 27, Teach me thy way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path. Psalm 37, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. And Isaiah says, your ears will hear. This is the way. Walk in it. But there's also that negative sense of the way. There is a way that seems right to a man in Proverbs 14. But the end of that way is death. We need to seek Christ's way, not our way. So Jesus is the only way. It's the same Greek word that they had for the road. He is both the road on which we travel and the destination that we seek. And so not heaven as a mysterious destination, but Jesus as a daily relationship. If we know him, we know the way to the Father. So it's not a works righteousness relationship. It is the right relationship with him. Well, there's another interruption. And the flow continues as Jesus teaches them. In verse 8, Philip interrupts and says, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. We don't know a lot about Philip, except that he was always anxious to bring people to Christ but he'd been a good Jew all of his life he'd heard about God all of his life but he was still unsatisfied show us the father 
he didn't know God as loving father. And a lot of people are in that place where they have a different view of God than they do of Jesus. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. It's sad to know the God language, but not know God. What is God like? Martin Luther had a horrible time with the image of God as father because he had a horrible earthly father. And how many people today, when they hear the term father, they cringe. Jesus came so that we would see father in the terms of Jesus' love. So don't gather your view of God from hearsay or pop culture or random verses or an earthly person, but rather from Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is equal to the Father. And so we see him in his fullness. And all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. Paul says all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. And to Philip, he says, If you don't believe in my word, at least believe for the sense of the work that you have seen. It's a lesser faith, but it's still a faith that Jesus does not despise. He recognizes that sometimes we have to rely on what we see with our eyes. So in answer to Peter, Jesus says, I am Lord. In answer to Thomas, he says, I am the way to the Father. And in answer to Philip, he says, I am the revelation of the Father to you. There's one more question. Jesus has started talking about the Holy Spirit and gets down in the narrative to verse 22. When Judas, not Judas Iscariot, also known as Thaddeus in Scripture, interrupts and says, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? In essence, why do you love us and not those others? And Jesus immediately ties the answer to obedience. He says, Obedience is a demonstration of love. And love is the inspiration for obedience. It's the left-right of the Christian walk. Love and obedience. If you love me, obey me. Jesus says it over and over to his disciples and often in these upper room discourses that we'll be reading over the next several weeks. But Jesus says, it's here for everyone. If you obey me, it's yours. And so with every interruption, Jesus answers with his purpose. His purpose, that he is about to go to his cross. That they must understand what it is that he has given to them. Obedience is a mark of Jesus' love. In just a matter of hours from when Jesus speaks these words, he'll be in the garden in Gethsemane. Peter, James, and John will have gone with him and wait as he prays and said, Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me anyway, besides going to this cross, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That nevertheless of obedience, I will obey no matter what. I read a great story of obedience about a man named Robert Coopersmith. He was 81 years old, had often flown in the small Cessna plane with his friend Wesley Sickle, and on June 17, 1998, was going up in that plane with his friend Wesley. And when they got to altitude, Wesley had a dramatic heart attack and passed away instantly. They were flying from Indiana to Muncie, uh, Indiana, from Indianapolis to Muncie, Indiana, and Robert immediately grabbed the controls and the radio as he'd seen Wesley do so many times and frantically began trying to get someone on the same frequency. As it turned out, there were two other Cessna pilots who were in the area and were on that frequency and heard his distress call. And they began talking him through what he needed to do. 
I was going to say gave him a crash course on flying, but that's probably not the right terminology on this one. But they shared with him how to climb, how to descend, pull this back for speed, pull this up for altitude. They told him all the things he needed to do. Pretty soon they located his, his uh, position and were flying alongside of him, talking him through this. We're telling him all the things he needed to do. One of my favorite parts of the story, they had turned back around to the nearest regional airport, which is there in Indianapolis, and it's called the Mount Comfort Airport. Well, meanwhile, in Mount Comfort, they were getting all the emergency vehicles ready for the crash landing that they anticipated happening. Well, the two pilots, for a couple of hours, flew alongside of him, got him comfortable in the plane. They went down, they circled the runway three different times before they told him just what it was he needed to do, and he finally felt he was ready for his landing. So he finally makes his attempts, and the nose bounces a few times, and the tail comes down, and the Cessna overshoots the runway and ends up in a muddy, grassy area, but it came to a stop without incident. Later, when Robert was being interviewed, he said, I just followed their instructions. My life depended on it. When I think of our lives and obedience to Christ, our lives certainly depend on it. Everything that we are, everything we ever will be, depends on that relationship with Christ. In that relationship of trust and obedience that Jesus calls us to and called the disciples to in this chapter. Down in verses 25 through 27, after he has introduced the coming Holy Spirit, he says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So Jesus puts bookends around this from verse 1 here into verse 27. Do not let your hearts be troubled. We live in a time that is troubling. But we are not to let our hearts be troubled. We are to trust in God with everything that we are. And that gives us that peace that the world didn't give, but that the world cannot take away. In the coming days, we're going to be talking about that peace and how we find that peace for ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in worship, recognizing that we are disciples, just as these disciples, and we often grasp and ask Questions, often the wrong questions. When you're trying to teach us about love, we're trying to learn the logistics. But as Peter and as Philip and as Thomas and as Thaddeus ask these questions, we ask you questions as well. Lord, what about our lives? What about our situation? How can we serve you? How can we obey you? May we be your disciples. And may we rely on that fullness of the Holy Spirit that they did not yet understand but that is ours and will lead us into all truth and will bring us the peace that only you can give. Father, we love you. Guide us as a church in these coming days and we will give you the glory and praise. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. God bless you.